Hey, Retention Pros. I'm Noah Rahim Zadeh and I lead partnerships here at Malomo. I'm super pumped to continue to chat with ecosystem experts alongside Mariah, who you all already know and love. Say hi, Mariah. Hey, everyone. As you probably know, Retention Chronicles likes to bring in some of the best retention-focused brands in the Shopify ecosystem. But we don't just feature brands. We also feature some great thought leaders in the Shopify ecosystem that serve brands. And because we always want these conversations to be fun, you'll hear us talk with our guests about what they're excited about and what's helped them get to where they are today. We hope you'll stick around to learn and laugh with us. Retention Chronicles is sponsored by Malomo, a shipment and order tracking platform improving the post-purchase experience. Be sure to subscribe and check out all of our episodes at gomalomo.com. Welcome back. Uh, to the latest episode of Retention Chronicles. It's been a while since we recorded, so I'm super, super excited um, to welcome Josh Chin today, uh, founder and CEO at Kronos Agency. Josh joins us from Singapore, where it's currently 7 a.m., but uh, if for those watching on, on the video recording, you'll see it, it doesn't look like he's only, uh, it's only 7am his time. So kudos <laughs> to you, Josh, and thanks so much for joining us early in the morning, your time. Yeah, my pleasure. And thanks for having me, Noah. Absolutely. Yeah. We're excited to dive into it. Uh, got Mariah here with me today as well, which is always a pleasure. Hey, Mariah. Woo-woo. What's up, Mariah? <laughs> Super excited today. Yeah, we, we, uh, it's funny because it's like morning your time, but Mariah pinged me like an hour and a half ago and was like, I'm going to go to yoga and then I'll be back on. <laughs> I'll be back yeah. on recording. So we're like, you know, ending and starting the day. It's, it's pretty wild. Yeah. We had a webinar today too. So I'm like so excited because that went well. And now like we get to chat with you, Josh. So had to switch up my normal routine with having yoga after work and just put it up an hour so I could, I could join this lovely conversation. Makes sense. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for, uh, thanks for getting that out of the way and joining us. Mariah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Josh, first time on, uh, we like to keep these personal and then get into sh- some shop talk and then, um, bring it back to the personal side toward the end. So with that in mind, uh, on the personal note, tell us one or two things that you're excited about in your personal life. Oh, well, one of the one of the projects I'm personally working on right now is my my strength. So, for a long time as a kid, I was a really weak and, and skinny guy, and I really didn't have much of a presence in the room and not a ton of self-confidence. I've always wanted to be strong. So I picked up powerlifting of all things when I was 16, 15 years old, super weak, couldn't, couldn't even lift an empty barbell. Um, but over time I got stronger. And every time I stepped into the gym, I added a tiny little plate, like one of the yeah. smallest plates you could find. Like the uh, 2.5s, yeah. Yeah, the 2.5s, 2.5 pounds, right? Little little tiny plates. And uh, that meant that I could progress on a visible and tangible level every single time I stepped in the gym. And uh, that was a, a concept in, in, in strength training called progressive overloading. And it was great because then I felt motivated to come into the gym. I was doing something new a like you know a very tiny amount um of, of increments but i could see progress so this year i'm trying to work on my weakest link which is uh my squats i'm relatively strong in deadlifts relatively okay on bench but squats have been a sticking point for me so i'm trying to lift two times my body weight uh, which would be 140, 140 to 145 kilograms. Um, what does it translate to in pounds, man? I got to look it up. I, gotta I was just about to say <laughs> before like we to, to treat. Holy I, cow. I think it's going to be 310. It's 310. Oh my God. Wow. 310 pounds. You. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, I'm not a heavy guy. So it's a, I'm, I'm about 70 kilos. 
which would be about, man, once again, 155 well, I pounds, like, I think. I feel like it'd be like 150 pounds if it's 300. Yeah. Yeah. There, thereabouts. Yeah. So that's, that's my goal. I'm, I'm currently at 110, I think my, my current one rep max kilos, but uh, yeah, so long way to go. And uh, I'm, I'm fairly weak in, in that movement. And uh, for, for people listening, if you're in the, uh, if you're an avid lifter, you know, that that's not a ton of progress. It's not, it's not a lot to, to achieve, but it's the progression that I, I really care about. And I'm only in the gym two, three times a week. So it's all about efficiency for me at this point in time. But that's that's a that's a fun one and it's it's keep keeping me motivated and, and just alive. That is one of the most unique things that we've heard with this. <laughs> and so it's easy, not- right? Like it's one of those things that doesn't divert a ton of my attention away from work. And that's still number one for me. And this is something I can work on, you know, in the middle of the day, which is what I typically do at like 12 p.m. when I'm on a on a lull in my entry. Got to get some more energy and, and whatnot. Exactly. I feel like people who lift often, it's like either your squat or your deadlift is like one of the two is like your favorite. And then the other one is just like, not it. And, or, and it's like yeah. always one of the other, I feel like everyone I've met, um, I feel like you know always what, has their one. You know what? This is, um, this is what I think with deadlifts. You're literally just picking a really heavy weight off the ground. And if you fail, you just let go. Yeah. <laughs> but there is no letting go in squats. Right. <laughs> so yeah, you, you have to bail. fall. <laughs> you could bail and get rid of the weight. But that's, first of all, it looks terrible. Yeah. <laughs> makes a huge Secondly, noise. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It makes a huge noise. Everyone knows you failed. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Everyone knows you failed. There's that ego involved. But most importantly, it's it's scary. It's really scary to be under the bar and feeling all that weight on your shoulders and you have no way to go but up, right? And in the middle of the kind of movement, and you know, while, while I'm training, I don't always feel this, but when you're in the middle of the movement, there's often a time where you get stuck and you have to keep pushing. And that's kind of like life or, or work. And Often we get stuck, but there's no choice but to keep pushing or you kind of just bail and fail. And uh, I, I think that a lot of those principles and how I think in the gym translates to how I feel at work. Yeah. Even if it's just, you know, subconsciously, I think it helps. Well, it's funny you say that because the first thing that came to mind when you talked about adding the, the smallest weight, the 2.5 pound weight was like the business lesson in that, which is like, keep pushing, you know, like growing and, and all that good stuff. So, um, I agree. There's a lot of probably life and business lessons in that. Um, and, and also it's funny on the leg thing. I literally wrote down like five, uh, new year's resolutions. I think I'm like three for five. So I'm, I'm on track for three. I'm off track for two. Uh, the one, one of them that I'm off track for is one day a week of leg day <laughs> because I'm <laughs> in the same boat. I've like, I hate leg day so much. Um, so this is motivating me, Josh. Maybe this is the, the kick in the ass. I need to, <laughs> to, uh, honor my it. resolution. <laughs> Next episode, like, we're going to check in. That's all. <laughs> Be like, no, yes. did you actually get don't Didn't love that one as much, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, well, congrats, man. That's super cool. That's an awesome accomplishment. Awesome goal. Sounds like you're you're working well toward it. Um, all right, getting getting into some shop talk. Tell us about Kronos. Would love, uh, given we have a co-founder on, we'd love to start with like your background and what led you to Kronos and sort of the founding story. Um, and then if you could bring us up to where you're at today. Sure. Um, this was in 2017. I was in school. I was in my third year of university in Singapore. Lots of free time. I wanted to pick up a skill, picked up copywriting. And now I wanted to make money. And <laughs> uh, I came across 
the world of Shopify. Uh, prior to that, I was kind of dabbling a little bit in, on eBay. I made my first uh, first buck on eBay, um, my first $1,000 uh, profit on eBay. And that, that was a lot of money back in, uh, back in 2017 as a broke university kid. So I took the money that I had, bought a bunch of courses, books, and educated myself on what was available in the market and uh, what I didn't know. And when I came across the Shopify ecosystem that was growing and booming at that point in time, I was like, this is it. And I could use copywriting as a skill set, uh, monetize it, and add a ton of value to the people I serve. And that eventually evolved into email marketing because email became such a powerful force for retention and therefore profits that we could measure as, um, as e-commerce operators. And so in my mind, if I could increase a business's revenue by 10%, that's massive, right? Just from a single channel. I could charge a lot of money for that. That was my mindset. And so that evolved into the operation that we have today. And we have gone from a kind of a side project to when I graduated university, we had a full team of 30 people. Uh, and today we have uh, approximately 80 in the, in the team. And we span across the globe primarily serving clients based out of the US uh, and Australia uh, with a couple of, about 20% of our clients are international across Europe and Asia as well. And uh, the bottom line is we are, we are a growth partner uh, more than anything else. Email and SMS is where we started. We now service clients on organic social. Um, we have a partner on paid media and paid social at, at same, as well. Uh, creatives as well. We have a creatives uh, arm that supplies ad creatives at high pace and high frequency to our clients. And all those things combined uh, is built upon a foundation of growing profitably, prof profitably with a keen focus on profitability. Uh, and the reason for that is we've seen tons of D2C brands come and go with, uh, you know, just an irresponsible uh, management of money and how they think about growth and spending, uh, especially with the past couple of years with VC money being so cheap and money being so accessible. It's really easy to fall in the trap of, all right, I'm going to spend as much as I can to acquire a customer as long as it falls, as long as my acquisition costs falls below LTV or what I foresee LTV to be. Right. But that's a terrible way of thinking because you need a massive cash float at all times. And there's no way of um, turning a profit in, that, uh, in, the, in the short term. And things can happen pretty quickly in, in the short term in the e-commerce space, as, uh, as you'd know. So um, where we come in, we uh, first look at the goals of the business from a profitability standpoint and where our clients want to be in a certain period of time. And we work towards those goals uh, together and using a mix of channels. Awesome. That is an awesome overview. So many questions. First, um, so it sounds like you started this while you were in school and you grew it before you graduated to 30 people. Like, how? How did you do that? <laughs> that is that is wild. Is that what you were going to school for? Was that like part of uh, some sort of like, you know, exit course or something? Or was this literally just a side hustle that you were balancing somehow with university as well? It was a, it was a side hustle. And wow. um, it was, well, from, so I have a co-founder. Yeah, and my co-founder runs operations, and the majority of the team rolls up to to my co-founder uh, Lewis, and uh, I oversee sales, marketing, partnerships, and the external side of the business. 
And what has worked for us is that the both of us were full-time in the business, mm. at least in our minds, and part-time in school. So <laughs> that helped a ton. And school was relatively smooth sailing and easy because I, I didn't exactly take on a ton of responsibilities and exactly take, take on a, a ton of classes that I didn't need to. Uh, I actually dropped out of my, um, what we call an honors program. It's very similar to the, the UK system of uh, universities. Yeah. And that gave me a little bit more free time. Um, and I was in business school. So there were a tiny bit of overlap of what, uh, what I learned and what I could apply. Yeah. But uh, the, the reality is that business schools are, are, are kind of like factories. They're, they're producing strong candidates for the enterprise ecosystem, the MNCs and the big companies. Right. So a large part of the curriculum was uh, surrounding operating and growing within a large organization and not necessarily starting one up. So we had to learn things from scratch and that's why we diverted the majority of our attention onto um, the business and that panned out well. From a growth point of view, we were lucky enough to have found um, key influencers and affiliates that we've done good work or we've eventually became our advocates and that became a core part of our strategy as we as we grew. Finding people who had influence, doing really, really good work, and out-delivering anything that uh, people have expected of us, and letting word of mouth do its thing, but being intentional with it. Meaning, it can be as simple as when we first started out, it was, hey, do you know anyone else that I should speak to in your circle of friends that could benefit from working with us to eventually building out a, a more robust and uh, practical referral program that came with commissions and uh, additional benefits. So that was our journey. And eventually when we uh, stepped out of school, we had a good sized team and also part of it out of necessity, being part-time founders, we needed full-time employees to yeah, yeah, yeah. really run the show. Yeah. Wow. What a story, man. That is awesome. Congrats on, you know, all the success to date. And I know you guys are continuing to do awesome things. Uh, Thank you. I'm curious too, like you, you were in school, you know, in uh, Singapore, how, how did it end up that most of your clients are in the U S and what is it like servicing them from, you know, uh, a day ahead, I think, uh, or behind ahead, ahead, a day ahead in most ahead. Cases. Yeah. We're in the future. So that's our advantage. <laughs> we see the future. You do. We know what's what like. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it's not easy, but there is a uh, there's an advantage in being where we're based out of. And we have access to global talent that most companies would kind of overlook. For instance, Malaysia is a great talent, a great uh, place for talent. I'm actually from Malaysia. I grew up in Malaysia and I moved to Singapore when I was 12 years old. And uh, there's an abundance of talent. And the only gap in, uh, in assessing these talent would be time zones and just bridging across time zones. So we have US counterparts within our agency that are uh, that are liaising with our clients and coordinating between internal team members as well as client-facing members based out of Asia who also interact with clients so that there is no gap in, uh, in the understanding and information flow. And we, all, we coordinate all of this via Slack and the, the communication channels. And, and so there is a uh i'd say there, there are a ton of processes and systems that are built to support the frameworks that we have built around our teams and our, our people uh, in order to support our clients in the best uh, best way possible um from a cultural point of view that's something that we actively screen for 
making sure that people are under are comfortable at least within our agency comfortable and open-minded to work with and deal with different cultures and the people of different backgrounds because that's something that we found to be the most important we have team members from 14 different countries I, I believe it was 10 to 14 different countries from all around the world so that's people from different backgrounds different upbringings and it's incredibly diverse which we also carry forward to how we deal with and work with clients yeah no that's that's something i guess i i wouldn't have considered right off the front is uh you know the the diverse talent that being based there um provides and um the unique perspectives as well i think you know like most i would imagine that most us based agencies almost everybody if not the entire team is based here um and so maybe there's you know i'm sure there there's some advantage to having people uh located across various countries with with diverse backgrounds and diverse viewpoints um that is a great advantage not just to you but obviously to your clientele as well um i want to definitely yeah i want to shift a little bit to something you said before which is <laughs> i'm so happy you did it's something that i talk about a lot i've probably said it on this podcast multiple times now so mariah forgive me but you <laughs> talked about your extreme focus on profitability and what i find interesting and mariah you can back me up on this probably like we really haven't heard the the mention of profitability we've definitely heard retention uh, a lot mm -hmm. retention chronicles we talk a lot about it uh it comes up because we force it to come up even if, <laughs> even if our guest doesn't want it to um i think most people have gotten around to the idea that retention is more important now than ever before in e-commerce but we don't hear the word profitability um from brands and from agencies as much as i think uh maybe we should, uh, just in terms of how important it is today. And one of the stats that I talk about a lot on webinars and podcasts is that in 2013, the average brand lost $9 for every new customer that they acquired. Today, that's $29. So 10 years later, Ooh. 3X, right? Okay. And so right. to your point, Josh, like it's such a great point and I'd love for you to double click on it. If you don't have a plan to keep those customers coming back, there's like, not only is there no point in acquiring them, you're like, you will go out of business if you don't, if you don't have a plan to keep them coming back, because you're losing so much money on that first customer in most cases, rising ad costs, um, you know, compliance issues, return of in-person shopping, all these things sort of feed into that. Um, that, you know, if you don't have a really tight retention focus and on a broader perspective, profitability focus, you're really in grave danger as a, as a brand today. And I'd love for you to talk about Kronos's approach to that, like whether or not you agree with everything that I just said and how you go about solving for it. I, I, I think that there is a, there is a, there's there's a good there's good and bad and there, there's there's two sides there are two sides to this uh this topic on one hand I, I i agree that's how we operate and profit comes first and when you think about the the economics of it all it, it makes total sense when when you think about the importance of retention for instance but on the on the flip side it may also make sense when you look at what's happened over the past couple of years where money was cheap and accessible, it just made sense when it came to the race for market share. Assuming that you have a really unique product mm -hmm. where once people got their hands on, they would love it, they would start talking about it on social, they would tell their friends about it and they would buy again. It makes sense for, for capturing market share to be the priority and not profitability. Um, but we're not playing that game anymore and things have, have changed and we're in a different era. Money is expensive. Interest, interest rates have gone up and it seems like it's going to stay up for, for a little bit of time. So what that means for 
D2C marketers would be that prof profits coming from the first purchase or maximum two purchases would be key. I like to look at the metric a little bit differently. I like to look at profitability within a time period. And often that's two weeks, one to two weeks maximum. So call it 14 days. Um, and the way we think about that is when, when you look at the, the economics of, a, of an initial purchase, you have COGS, which accounts for, call it 30%, the cost of acquiring customer. Yeah. Going to ad spend and, well, mostly ad spend, that's going to be about 50%, mm -hmm. thereabouts on average. And that leaves a tiny bit of margins for OPEX. And for most businesses, that 20% isn't even there because the cost of acquiring a customer is just so high. Right. And uh, when you look at retention and what email, SMS, and all these channels can do, it effectively removes the need for cost of acquisition completely by diverting all these resources into sending an, sending an email, sending a text, which costs you a quarter of a, of a cent. And when you look at that, it dramatically shifts the level of the levels of profitability within a 14 day, 14 day period. So what I like to do is I like to maximize the profitability of a customer within the first 14 days while interest levels excitement is at its all-time high so that includes and maloma is a great tool for this as well the post-purchase experience what we like to do is during the post-purchase experience we like to identify mo key moments of interactions where excitement and interest at its is at its peak and introduce new products that are relevant and exciting for the customer at an unbeatable price, offer, package, or whatever. And uh, once we get over the hump of the second purchase, what we found is that the third and fourth purchase becomes a lot easier because we have now had two moments of, of truth versus right. just one. So, um, that's that's how I've uh, been thinking about it and how I'd like to position and start most of our strategies with our clients from because that's just the right thing to do in today's market. Really interesting. I think we're getting a lot of like first time thoughts here, Mariah, which is awesome. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Um, so I'm thank you for the Malomo shout out. We agree. I think the post purchase is vastly underutilized for those driving those repeat purchases, especially for first time customers. Um, outside of that, I'm curious. Like one of the one of the popular use cases that a lot of our brands will will enable is separate experiences, segmented is what we call them experiences for subscribers and non subscribers. So what that looks like is if you're a subscriber, Josh, we don't want to get you to subscribe in the post-purchase experience. You're already subscribed, but we know that you're probably really excited about the brand. Um, you, you have a package on the way. So, you know, that excitement is even higher since you're already subscribed. Let's not show that, but let's show our refer a friend program because you're excited. The package is on the way. You've been a loyal fan, which is why you're in the program. Um, like let's turn that retention channel into an acquisition channel and kind of create this, this flywheel. Whereas right. if I'm not a subscriber, um, the, the number one thing we can do to increase overall LTV is to get me into the program. So let's send me to a page while my package is on the way. That's mostly focused on getting me to sign up for the subscription program. And I think that these two things, uh, what I'm describing and what you're describing are somewhat similar. But the subscription program itself isn't necessarily going to increase revenue in the first 14 days. So outside of the scenario where you just talked about additional purchases in the um, order tracking experience, like what are some things that brands should be thinking about to drive repeat purchases or additional revenue uh, for their first time customers within that first two weeks? That's a great question. 
And I think that when you look at new revenue from a holistic level, including new revenue that you otherwise would not have had, for, for instance, a referral, then that paints a bigger picture of what has truly happened. Yes. I think the referral plays is interesting. For a subscription customer, new revenue is going to come in a second purchase within the first 14 days. But if a referral does happen in the next 14 days, that's a massive win because you've saved on acquisition costs right. by you know, that the 50% or, or more of, of your uh, initial AOV. How I think about that is the, the repeat purchases can only happen organically based off the customer's life cycle and how they interact with, with, with the brand. It cannot happen based off push. So but by what I mean by that is you can't push a product. You cannot push a discount offer at like random times and random intervals uh, in a customer's life cycle and create a ton of follow-ups and expect a conversion to happen. You, you might be able to, um, but the more intentional way of doing so would be to identify key moments of, of interest, excitement, like I mentioned. Um, for instance, the time period that it takes between an order to be placed and shipment to, to happen, that's a fairly chunky amount of time for most businesses. But even if you think about it, two days is a long time to wait when you're really excited to receive a new product. What can happen in those two days can set you up for success or failure beyond those two days. So when we think about that, when we set the stage right by either creating content that's relevant, additional value added uh, content products or things that you can give at a minimal to no marginal cost to you, that would set the stage for what happens beyond the shipment date. So once, uh, once the product arrives, that's when a game starts happening. When That's when repeat purchases can happen. From the moment a product arrives on the doorstep, that's when the actual um, experience, the physical experience of the product happens. So when you break that down into, call it three stages of first excitement, receiving the product, the unboxing experience, right? Mm -hmm. That's the first moment of, of, uh, um, of, of truth or realization. And then you have the, the second moment, which would be the usage of the product, actually using it. And for, for most people, that's going to be quite close. The third would be the, the remorse stage. Oh, I, maybe I should have bought this, or maybe there's something else that's better, or maybe this isn't for me. So between those three stages, there are instances where you could add additional value, create additional opportunities to build further connection with your customers that could lead to when you do introduce a new offer, a new product as an upsell or a cross-sell, it becomes a lot more, um, a lot more organic and a lot lower friction to achieving than, than otherwise. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, after purchasing, I, I recently I got into drinking matcha and okay. it's just matcha and water. Okay. At first, it was pretty disgusting. Like powder kind of thing? Powdered matcha, yeah. Powdered matcha and with the, the bamboo whisk with that little bowl. And it, it's a <laughs> relatively tedious process, but it's pretty quick. Yeah. Right. And um, it, it's, it's great. It's like, it, it's like caffeine, but it keeps you uh, relatively calm and it gives you a nice little uh, level-headed level energy across a longer period of time. But yeah, so I, I like matcha. And I bought matcha from this company. And uh, when the shipment arrived, I received a text. And in, in this instance, it was, a, it was kind of an order confirmation text. Yep. Following that, it was a thank you message 
plus a an offer that I, I just could not refuse. Um, and in this case, it was a free plus shipping offer for an additional lower quantity amount of a different product that I've wanted to try, but didn't uh, didn't decide to at the start of my interaction. So it was a different form of matcha, very premium, typically sold for 30 bucks um, retail for 30 grams, right? And they're offering it to me for free, just oh, wow. shipping and handling. Holy and in God. my mind, I was thinking, and I'm in my mind, I was thinking, this is a terrible business decision. You're losing money on, on the product. Yeah. But when, when I sat down and when I actually thought about the what they were doing, the shipment fee that I, I was paying for, uh, like five bucks or, or 10 bucks or whatever, more than covered for the cost of shipping plus probably offset the cost of the product itself. So they're probably breaking even on that second product. But what they've done is they've created a second purchase opportunity. Now my relationship with that brand has duplicated. So I, I, I have now two purchase experiences with the brand. Trust is now at least 50% higher. And when I think about matcha, the next time I need a refill, I'm going to go back to them. Because they have given me a good experience, um, great customer service at the right time, the right message, and to the right person at the right time. And they've done a segmentation. The segmentation is really, really well because there are yeah. different types of matcha drinks as well, right? I'm the, I'm the type of guy that likes matcha with just water and no milk. Very weird. Um, but there are also people that like matcha with milk and only with milk, Right. And I'm pretty sure if they're doing a good job, they're, they have also segmented their customer base into these yeah. different segments and created unique offers for each of them. And, yeah. and so now my next purchase is going to happen within the next 20 days for sure, because there's only so much matcha in a single, serve, uh, in, in a single can or a single like, canister. Uh, and it, it's only going to last me for you know, that many days. Yeah. I love that use case. Let's give the brand a shout out. Which which brand is it? Yeah, it's it's Naoki Matcha, and I, I think they sell in the U.S. as well. N A O K I Matcha uh, in in Singapore, they're selling it. That's Naoki Matcha Asia. Let's see. That's awesome. I while you're pulling that up, no, I have a quick question. You mentioned Josh how they knew like who they were. Um, marketing to and that they knew that you just liked water with your matcha so was that from like a review like a like a quiz that they had um or was it like you would left it like abandoned cart sequence type thing or how did they have so, that information that's a great question they they collected uh information from from me so it's, it's, it's zero party data i i provided that information to them um but all right here's the Here's a part where I, I feel that they could have done a lot better in. The information was collected via, I believe it was, um, I, I can't exactly remember what the platform was, but maybe Google, Google Forms, but it's most definitely not connected to their CRM and their CDP. Um, so that's probably a missed opportunity because they would probably have to kind of manually make that, those integrations happen. And uh, so that, yeah, data is unified. Um, but yeah, they asked about my my uh, my habits in, in drinking matcha. What do I typically go with? The yeah, the style of drinking, the products that I uh, that I that I liked, and what else? I think those those are those are the key key questions that they they asked, and that that just gives them a ton of information, right? And then on the back end, they could now create content offers and bundles that are specifically made just for people like me. Right. Yeah, that's awesome. I know there are a couple platforms solving for that zero party data. Um, 
challenge with like quizzes like Mariah you mentioned I think Faring is one of the up-and-coming players in the space um I think Okendo now has that functionality as well uh, I believe so yeah which is really cool and I think Josh to your point like huge opportunity for uh Naoki or any brands to sort of like more seamlessly connect that because like for Kronos, for example, you work really closely on the email and SMS side. It would be so much easier if that data automatically fed into Clavio for segmentation rather than having to do some sort of copy paste and or go into each customer attribute and, you know, fill out a profile manually. So I, Absolutely, think, yeah. I think that's a great call out. Do you guys do anything like that with with Clavio? And, and also, I'm curious who you use for a uh, SMS. Are you using Clavio now or are you using Attentive, Postscript? How, how do you think about that? So um, with the, uh, I'll talk about the um, the survey forms to begin with. Clavio has a pretty decent uh, sign-up form feature that most people just don't know about because it's kind of just built into Clavio and uh, most people are looking for a standalone tool. Um, if you're looking for a, a really sophisticated standalone tool, um, for instance, for, for pre-purchase, we use Octane AI. Mm, We've yeah. done very, very well in what we're trying to achieve. Um, and then there are a bunch of tools out there, right? And uh, with collecting data and information, at the end of the day, what you really want is a tool that allows you to piece together information into your customer profile and kind of build properties around your customer profile. And if you're using Clavio, that accomplishes the whole thing because it's native into the platform. And uh, most brands would use Clavio as a kind of like a pseudo CDP. Yeah. And what, uh, what I've seen done really well is on the pre-purchase level, um, if it makes sense using a quiz, a quiz funnel, and using that opportunity to kind of just collect data points over uh, over time, um, post purchase as a retargeting inline pop up that targets only customers that have made a purchase before. Uh, that works out really really well, and you can do that with Clavio. For SMS, uh, we use Clavio, uh, Postscript, and Attentive, depending on our clients' preferences. And uh, some tools are better than uh, the other, given certain circumstances. But what I'll say is with SMS, you you typically run into a similar issue when introducing new new channels, which would be attribution. And uh, that's difficult to do. So we optimize on platform based off the metrics that we see on platform. Meaning if I'm if I'm trying to optimize for my SMS campaigns or uh, automations, I'm going to look at, and I'm using Postscript, for instance, I'm going to look at Postscript's data points because if they're, if they're inaccurate um, or if attribution is off, they're most likely going to be inaccurate consistently. <laughs> so that's still going to give me a good sense of where I'm trending towards, upwards mm -hmm. or downwards. Yeah. But when you're looking cross-platform and cross-channel, uh, it's mostly a, a lot more prudent to, to look at a platform like Google Analytics or Triple Wheel. Yeah. yeah. Which is what we do. Attribution comes up all the time on these. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> it's painful. But that's a fresh new take about like how attribution that if you, if, because it is such a beast to tackle, like just look at the platform and stick with that platform. Because if you try and compare, like I've heard, right, like HubSpot and Google Analytics for us, when I'm trying to even look at data, it's like you can't. You can't necessarily compare them because how they're pulling data and attributing different things across the board is going to be different. So it, even though like attribution always comes up time and time again, it's a fresh perspective to just say like, hey, even if it's inaccurate, you can't totally trust these numbers. You can still see trends, like even if it isn't exactly to the dollar or to the number amount. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. They're still winning in attribution. And so uh, it will, will never be able to fully get a, yeah, you'll never be able to 
get a full grasp of, of, of things. And we've, we've done so many audits for so many brands for some of the biggest brands in the world they can think of um, for like fortune 500 type companies. And everybody's saying the same thing. Like th there is no clear way of properly attributing success in marketing. And the only thing that you can do is when you're optimizing for channels, you're within channels at, at least when you're not looking cross-functionally and across uh, multiple channels, just look at the platform and make decisions off the data that you have uh, access to. Yeah, that's, that's an awesome perspective. Mariah, I totally agree. Like we haven't heard that one. And on that note, we only have a few minutes left, Josh. So because you've, you've given us some hot takes, I, I got to ask you uh, 2023 trends that you're keeping an eye on that, that you recommend our audience here sort of um, keep an eye out for and, um, and what your take is on them. Like where, where's the industry going and how should our audience sort of consider that when they think about their own businesses? Go back to fundamentals. I, I think that's, that's a, yeah, it's, it's just a big wake up call for DUC <laughs> brands and for businesses in general. Um, be prudent with how you're spending money, uh, be prudent with, um, returns, and when you think about returns, think about returns from a blended perspective across multiple channels. MER is a great way of looking at things, um, but when you're looking at optimizing specific uh, channels, it's really helpful to look at 14-day period uh, returns or maybe even longer, 30-day uh, LTVs. Um, that's going to give you a full picture <clears throat> of where you're at and how we can optimize towards profitability. Um, some other trends I'm personally really interested about. We recently had AI Day at Kronos at our company. Of course you did. Of course. <laughs> of course we did. Everyone, everyone did. Uh, and what I'm really excited about is augmenting production using AI and doing more of what we've done well in using AI. And give us some examples. So the, the brief that I gave uh, our, our team was that, all right, every department, go look for the top three tools that would allow you to save 10 hours of work per week. It's a, it's a big ask. Um, what I've come to find is through that process, we've realized that there are, um, there are things that we are currently doing, like ideation, um, drafting copy, for example, uh, drafting, editing designs that are really low value tasks that we're still having our team members do that they could be use, using their time for something else instead that are of higher value, like thinking about copy strategy or building out the, a better design persona or thinking about strategy on a higher level. Um, a couple of tools that we've recently tested have uh, done pretty well. Copy AI, copy.ai was one that uh, we found some success with. Um, there's a tool that's really interesting that requires a little bit of, uh, it's a little bit more, a little bit open-ended in what you can do with it is browse.ai. So browse.ai is this, uh, this nifty little tool that acts like a person browsing the, the internet and you could have it extract data as a, as a person browsing the, a page um, at specific intervals of time. It could essentially turn a website into an API if you're, you know, if you're, if you, you're not able to, uh, to build an API. Uh, there are, and that, that's where it gets pretty great because you could do some really funky stuff with it that may go against terms of service for certain companies and certain websites. So I'd say avoid that, but for, you know, speeding up tasks and, and just um, making life a little bit easier, this could be a lifesaver. Interesting. Are those both, are those both like free tools or co like cost-wise, what are you looking at? I, I believe they are free 
credits available, but when you want to do more or there are certain limitations of the free tool. Uh, with copy AI, it's it's fairly affordable and very, very accessible for most people. So um, browse with browse.ai, that's where it gets a, a little bit tricky because it's also credit-based um, and it is used, the credits are used per based off each task that's performed. And, and for certain tasks, it takes up a lot more uh, a lot more credits. For example, if you use it on um, LinkedIn, I think it takes up a, a lot more credits than than average. Um, I'm not sure how much that falls in line within uh, terms of service of LinkedIn. So, right, right, interesting. Well, that's yeah. good. I'm glad that uh, if we're gonna have an AI discussion, we have some like actionable, you know, takeaways on it, uh, which is very cool. It's cool because like you know, up until this year, really, or maybe like halfway through last year, there was a lot of talk about it, but there wasn't a whole lot that you could actually do. And now it's like, I mean, I just typed in, you know, copy.ai and I could start using it right now <laughs> to to write a blog. Um, it's just, it's, it's awesome how fast that whole sort of space is moving. Um, Josh, really appreciate the time, man. We were at time. So, if you could leave our audience with uh, one more question for you, uh, you've obviously had an awesome career, started Kronos out of school. It's now one of the leading, uh, I think, agencies in the space from our perspective. So what what's one or two things that uh, you would pass along as a piece of advice that's helped you get to where you are today? Ask the dumb questions. Don't be afraid to ask. Love that. That's I feel what sets apart people who progress quicker than those who, who don't. Set aside your ego, ask the dumb questions, even if you think they're the stupid the, the stupidest question in the world. Um, you have to you have to go through a period of not knowing and really sucking in <laughs> order to be good. So um, and you'd be surprised at how many connections you get and how many um, opportunities that, that you get by just asking them dumb questions over time. That's yeah. great. I feel like I ask Noah like a dumb question every day. So <laughs> that makes me feel way better. And the great thing about dumb questions is that you only ask it once. Exactly. That's the whole point of a dumb question, right? So. And to Josh's yeah. point too, like I've never thought that your questions were dumb, Mariah. So. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Uh, that's awesome, man. I love how simple it is and practical. And I totally agree. Um, it's sort of a hidden skill to be able to do that. So um, appreciate that and appreciate you. Thank you so much for joining us. 7am your time. So just starting your day. Hopefully this wasn't a, a too terrible way to do that. And uh, looking forward to getting it's been great. <laughs> yeah, appreciate it. Thank you. And um looking forward to seeing more of retention chronicles. Absolutely. Thanks, Josh. We love that. Have a great rest of the day.